Hello to Norbert Wiener. It's Beautiful Anonymous. One hour, one phone call, no names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you and you'll get to know me. Hello everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to another episode of Beautiful Anonymous a show where you hear real people tell their real stories and their real opinions in their own words. We barely edit these things, if at all. And uh, hopefully what's happening right now is as we all are kind of closed off from the world, this show has helped crack that door open for you a little bit, one hour at a time. Been hearing from you a lot of you. means a lot to hear that it is having that effect on some people. Thank you for listening, supporting this show. Wanted to say it's been a long time since I've had a plug for something in the intro. I got my first shows in four months. Brooklyn uh, Park Life is the sister venue of Littlefield's great comedy venue. And I'm doing two shows, August 9th, 4,000 square foot space, 80 tickets. You'll have your own room. Every table is going to have a plastic partition. Masks are required. You order your food through an app. Your tip is paid for. You don't really have to interact with people. If these safety standards weren't in place, I wouldn't be doing this, but they are. So I feel good about it. And the shows are quickly selling out. You can find info on how to get your tickets at littlefieldnyc.com. Now, today's episode, this is one that's been a long time coming. If you're a long time listener of this show, you know there is one topic that every time it, it comes up, I react as if I have bit into some spoiled food. And that topic is math. You have heard me go into actual, what I think many listeners would describe as irrational anger towards the idea that math even exists. And uh, it's been a long time feeling of mine. And it's obviously driven by fear and uh, my experience in my own schooling and how, how math affected me then. But look, we got someone who's calling me out on this and someone who has the ultimate authority to do so. We have someone who has a doctorate in math calling up, finally putting my feet to the fire and saying, here is what's cool about math. And I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a call that has a lot of humor to it. And I think that's something that we can all enjoy right now. So let's everybody dive headfirst into a very divisive topic, math numbers. Enjoy the call. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello? Hello? Chris? Yep. That's me. I don't know. I don't know why I asked, obviously, to you. I guess I'm just used to people asking that question. (laughs) How's it going? How's it going? Uh, pretty good. It's, uh, it's, uh, weird. You know, I'm out in, I live in New Jersey now. I love New Jersey, getting used yeah. to not being in the city. I enjoy having a yard. Yep. It's cool. Yep. How's it going with you? Yeah. I, uh, it's going all right. I'm, uh, on the West Coast, although I used to, I did, uh, my undergraduate work in New Jersey. So uh, I'm somewhat familiar. Where at? Um, <laughs> I went to uh, Princeton University. Ooh. Uh, I was there for four years. I know. 
I know that's usually the reaction, which makes me a little uncomfortable, but I guess I need to own it. Well, as a Rutgers man, I can say you are my natural enemy, but the impression I got was that <laughs> Rutgers really hated Princeton and Princeton didn't really give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was my impression too. I had, I had some friends who were from New Jersey, so I've, I've been to Rutgers. I've been to the grease trucks one time. Yeah. Uh, and I enjoyed it very much. You guys would all come party with us and be interlopers, and then we'd, uh-huh. go, we'd go try to sneak into your dining clubs, and you'd always catch us. <laughs> yeah, I was not a member of an eating club. I was—I don't know. They seemed, I don't know. They seemed like they were too cool for me, maybe. Um, so I, <laughs> I lived an independent lifestyle while I was there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. That was, that was a long time ago. I yeah. feel like we're, we're of a similar age. I think I'm a little bit younger than you, but I graduated from college at the mid 2000s. Mm-hmm. I graduated um, in 02. I will say this. Okay. Hoagie Haven. Great place. Hoagie Haven's pretty legit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I miss, I miss Hoagie Haven. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, now that, we've, um, now that we've talked about the class warfare of colleges in New Jersey and hoagies, <laughs> what would you like yeah. to talk about today? Um, well, so I have I have something to tell you, which I'm I'm worried will make you a little bit uncomfortable, but I feel like it could be a fruitful point of conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. And that thing is that I am a doctor uh, of mathematics. Uh, <sighs> this is going to be a long hour for me. It's going to be a long hour for me. I'm open. I'm open to the, the conversation. So. So I, I feel like you're, you know, I've listened to most of the episodes. I know that you have, have a bone to pick with math. And I just want to start by saying I totally understand it because I feel like the way we teach math in this country is not good. And uh, it basically tends to just like uh, any, any joy that people might have had uh, for problem solving and, and thinking mathematically tends to get sucked out of them at a young age. So I begrudge anyone who has the opinion that you have (laughs) when it comes to math. Um, But I also got a degree in it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like working in academia anymore. I got out of it, but uh, I was in a PhD program. I spent like six years in the library, basically like reading math books every day, which I'm sure sounds like a nightmare to you. Uh, (laughs) But there are aspects. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, you you went to Princeton. You got a good laugh. If anybody's going to convince me, it's you. I also will say this. I've actually been thinking a lot about math lately because... Oh, yeah? Well, because I have a son now, and he's going to go to school someday. And I actually actually feel like at a a very young age, I'm not going to be able to to help him with that subject. So I'm already feeling some red flags going up of like... I, I, I get tripped up once you hit three digits and multiplying. That's about where it stops for me. Little oh, yeah. algebra. So, yeah, I yeah. have to figure out how to f- get at least some basic uh, level of math down to help this boy. So I'm open. Sure. I'm well, open you got, to this combo. You got some time, I guess. <laughs> yes, yeah. Sure. Um, you know, I, I, uh, there are there are definitely aspects of it because you know I, I I I guess I'm a math nerd. I spent all that time learning math, um, but I also feel like I have a, a creative side, and I'm a comedy nerd, and uh, obviously uh, listen to your podcast a lot. And um, there are aspects of 
that part of my life that did feel like I was uh, sort of nurturing my more creative side, my more artistic side, even though I was, you know, like reading math papers and, and thinking about math problems. So there is that aspect of it. But again, I, I think that is not the aspect of it that is nurtured in schools for the most part. Um, a lot of times because the focus is so much on testing, right? Like you have to teach to the test and the test scores are super important and funding is tied to test scores. And so it's all about test, 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 and uh, testing the sort of joy out of the subject. Um which is unfortunate, but I don't, I don't know what to do about that. That's sort of beyond my pay grade. Now, let me ask you your opinion on this. Cause I agree. Testing seems to be, I have a friend who was a teacher at one of the best public high schools in the country here in New Jersey. And she, yeah. she left and took a lower salary because the obsession with testing was so severe. Sure. Now, sure. I'll say this on top of testing. It's so funny. You call today. I'm reading a book called Range by David Epstein is very good. It basically exists to say this whole myth that you have to put 10,000 hours in on a thing is dangerous because critical thinking doesn't really develop that way. And people with a wide range of experience are actually the ones who tend to become virtuosos in their fields. And I just read a Uh chapter last night that's all about math teaching that says in America, um, learning is basically built where kids can just keep guessing until the teacher tells them they're right. And it's basically (laughs) like you go down a list, like they're giving examples of basic algebra. Well, six N, what does that mean? And the kids go, does that mean you add six and N? No, it doesn't mean you multiply them. Yeah. And it basically said that the way things like that are taught in America doesn't lead to people having to sort out for themselves how things work and how to solve them, which is more effective teaching. They, They said that, very often, this book said very often when people rank their teachers um, in college as well, that the people who they students give the best rankings to are the ones who make it easiest, but that those skills don't <laughs> stick when they've done studies. And the people who rank yeah. teachers as hard asses who they hate, often those people go on and in future classes in that subject, their grades keep getting better and better because they've been forced to learn how to creatively problem solve on their own. Sure. Anyway, yeah, that makes I, sense. I mean, I've rambled enough. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I'm done. That was too much talking from this guy. <laughs> um, I was just going to say certainly, you know, when I was in when I was in grad school, uh I had to teach and um TA for classes. Um there was so much kind of learned helplessness that I saw from students where, you know, if they didn't know immediately how to solve the problem or if the problem on the test didn't exactly match the problem on the homework, even if it was just like one logical step. Uh, and it was very, very similar to something they'd seen with just maybe one slight twist. So many times people just like throw up their hands and they're like, I don't know. <laughs> There's how would I know how to do this? This isn't like, this isn't exactly like what I've seen before. And so I'm not even going to try and think about how to do it. I'm just going to kind of give up. Um, and so that was something I saw a lot of when I was working with undergrads and it, and it bummed me out because I, I, I knew that they could do it, but they sort of had, had learned to just kind of 
I don't know, learn to, to not try or learn that like they weren't math people. And so this was, this was beyond their reach, even though it really wasn't. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of that is, is driven by sort of how we teach um, math, especially, and especially at, at young ages. Um, and it's a bummer. Now what people have claimed to me, and this is a feeling yeah. I've never felt, is that yeah. hitting a wall in math for people like you who are into it and you have a doctorate in it, that when you hit those walls, it's actually very fun because that's almost a situation where you go, well, now I get to tinker around in this world and look for the hack that gets me on the other side of this wall. True or false? Sometimes. I mean, there to a point, uh, there is a point at which the wall becomes too high and then it becomes frustrating and then you begin to question like what you're doing with your life. <laughs> Uh, but there is a, there's a certain degree of like reasonable challenge where you, where it feels difficult, but not impossible. And you can feel like you, you can make headway on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what was your dissertation um, about? Oh God. Now you're asking the hard questions. <laughs> uh, I can tell you the title. I actually, I'm in, I'm in a sort of makeshift workspace because we're all quarantining. Right. And mm-hmm. so I have the dissertation. I can tell you the title if you, want actually maybe i shouldn't because that will that will make me non-anonymous well maybe uh, you can say it and I'm... then we'll we'll bleep it and that way i'll have the frame <laughs> of reference and can react to it and see where we're really at with things so let's just if we can note sure. anita that we're going to bleep the name of this dissertation sure so i can tell you generally and we don't have to bleep this but generally it, the area was number theory and specifically the title of the dissertation is But that's about as much as I can tell you <laughs> about the content. If someone, if someone asked me to, to like describe what the dissertation was about, I would not be able to tell you. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things, and I'm going to be very honest. First of all, yeah, if, go for it. If the world could hear the level of complexity in that title you just spat out, they'd <laughs> be laughing as hard as I am right now because that. It you may as well have been speaking in not even a foreign language, like a dead language to me. That's how little sure. I understand what you just said. Sure. And and secondly, <laughs> I mean no offense by this. This podcast, there's two rules, right? You stay anonymous and I can't hang up. And yep. hearing the title of that, I've never been more tempted to break the second <laughs> rule. I knew it. I knew it. I, before I told you I was a, a doctor of math, I almost wanted to say, like, you're not going to hang up, right? I'm not allowed. But talk. So here, so you say you have a bone to pick with me on this math thing. Is that why you called today? Uh, I mean, also to just hang out. I love it. So I'm going to ask you then, if this is open-ended and we can just start on this topic, in... You say that you understand my frustration. You've seen it before. You've seen it among students. You know there's a lot of people who react poorly to math the way I do. I'm sure I've sent you into a uh, frustration, if not rage at times, as I rail against math. <laughs> Sell me on it. Sell me on it. What is it. Why should I love math? What's exciting about math? How can you be creative with math? And I don't want you using them big words like in your dissertation no, title. No big word. I, I don't need to be hearing about, about f- flozzy glots or whatever you said back there. 
um, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's, uh, there's something, uh, for me, it's kind of like trying to solve a mystery, right? Like there, there, there are truths that exist about the world that have not been discovered yet. Uh, and when you solve a really hard problem, uh, or approach a problem in a new way, you are seeing things and learning things and discovering things that potentially nobody else has seen or learned or discovered before. Um, and that is a really satisfying feeling. Um, and in terms of like, I think the thing, things about math that you don't get to experience when you were in elementary school or middle school or high school, partially because of the way we teach it, but partially because of uh, how much math already exists. It's, it's hard to sort of like explore math in that way when you're younger, right. And explore it in a way where maybe you're exploring things that are new or, uh, you know, haven't been uh, thought about before. Um, and then it's also, <clears throat> I, I find it creative once you get to a certain point, because you are, you, you do have to like, think about things in a different way. If you're, if you're trying to solve a problem that people have been trying to solve for 400 years, uh, you're not going to be able to solve it using the same ideas that people have been using for 400 years. So you have to, um, you have to be creative and come up with different ways to sort of think about the problem to, to try to solve it. Um, I mean, I, I, sometimes I think of it as being similar to writing, right? Like there are certain rules. If you want to write a book, which you have, right? There are certain rules that you have to follow when you're writing a book. You can't just like type a bunch of random letters you know, on the keyboard and then submit it to your publisher and say, this is the book because they will laugh at you, right? Like you have to know how to uh, not only structure the book and, and write coherently, but you have to know the syntax and the grammar of the language that you're writing in. Um, and the same is true for math. It's just that like there are a lot more rules, right? It's more structured in terms of what is acceptable uh, grammar and what is acceptable syntax. But if you're adhering to those rules, there's still room to play just like there is in, in writing uh, English. And so I find that I find that aspect of it uh, fun, but also but also challenging, right? Because there are more rules and it, it can be really infuriating when you are stuck and you want to make progress and you feel like there is no way uh, sort of around what you're trying to do. Um, but I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I was always kind of a math nerdy kid. And um, when I was in high school, we, uh, we watched this video about Andrew Wiles, who's a famous mathematician who uh, works at Princeton. Um, and he, he solved a, a very famous math problem that had been open for 400 years. And he basically solved it by like isolating in his study for seven years and just working on this problem. And so they made a documentary about him and, and they interviewed him. And, and when he was talking about the moment of sort of revelation when he realized he had solved this problem, he started crying. He, he got so emotional about it. And I, I was really struck by that because, you know, I was like 18 and I like math, but I, I'd never seen someone get so overcome with emotion about it. And I thought, wow, that's like, uh, I don't know. It really resonated with me for some reason because he, I could see like for him that was very emotional and, 
you know, for him, it was like he was, he was creating something new. Um, and so I, I really loved that. And I feel like that watching that kind of was a big reason that, that drove me to want to pursue math as far as I could, right. To see like, can I, can I experience it in the same way that he did? Well, that's badass to say there's been a thing for 400 years and then somebody right? solves it. That's badass. Yeah. I get that. That's kind of rock star stuff. Now, how do you respond when I say that my math teachers used to um, force me to do things that filled me with endless dread and I would get so worked up during math tests that I very often had to go use the bathroom to have emergency panic diarrhea. And then when I would say yeah, to them, that bumped me out. yeah, it was terrifying. They thought I was cheating and leaving the answers. I'm like, no, this just scares me so much. And uh, yeah. And then I'd say, I feel like I can use a calculator on this. And they'd say, well, you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. And now I literally have a calculator <laughs> right. in my pocket at all times. Do you feel totally. like my seventh grade math teacher, who was also the girl's soccer coach, who really gave me the business and, and used to get mad at me and um, sort of shame me for being so scared of math. Do you think that I'm within my rights to track him down and be like, you were totally wrong. I have a calculator in my pocket. Yes, I think you're totally within your rights, 100%. I got to yeah. do that. I don't even know if that man's alive or dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like the, the even the <laughs> things that we learned in math class, like who's doing long division by hand anymore? Like there's no, <sighs> there's no need to know how to do that, right? Like just use a calculator. Um, I think math is, if anything, more interesting when you have a calculator because you can uh, you can think at a higher level, you can think like, okay, if I want to multiply these two large numbers together and I punch them into my calculator and I get a number, does that number make sense? Is it, is it of the right general size or not? Um, but you don't have to worry about the details, right? Like let the technology worry about the details and then you can think about other things. Calculators are great. We should just use calculators. I love that. Oh, if a teacher said that to me, I would I would have worshipped at their altar. <laughs> How come with math? Here's the other thing about math. If you're trying to convince me that math can be sexy and cool, why am I using that shitty yellow paper that tears every time you put your eraser to it? Remember that shitty yellow paper? <laughs> you had to fold it into 16 goddamn squares. And then God forbid you mess up, you got to use your eraser and it tears right through the shitty yellow paper. And then you feel like you have this scarred yeah. paper and everyone can see that you did it wrong. Everyone from across the room can see the <laughs> hole in your paper and they can know, sure, smart guy, you might be really good at the English and the history stuff. And you got a good memory, but you're not good at math and we can all judge you for it. Can we eliminate yeah. the shitty yeah, yellow paper? Let's get rid of that. Yeah, shit. we can get rid of that. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for when by the time I was in grad school, I was I was writing in these notebooks that had no lines, and I wrote in. I, I feel like most people who are in math grad school are just writing in pen all the time, which was super confusing to my wife. She was like, "Well, why don't you just use a pencil so you can erase?" But the mistakes are part of it too, right? Like if you're if you're working on a hard problem and you take an approach and it doesn't work out three months later, you might not remember you did that approach and you maybe get the idea again. And it's helpful to go back and see, Oh yeah, I already tried that thing and it didn't work out. Um, so yeah, I prefer, I prefer pen and just embrace the mistakes. That's part of it. That's okay. Well, I was actually just reading in that book that 
in Japan, sometimes they will spend an entire class on one math problem. And students will go up and they will mark、uh, the student's name at the point that they try to step in and solve the problem. And then they leave all the mistakes on the board. And there's actually a word that refers to when you look at a board full of math mistakes in the process of getting there. And it's all about creative. That's、thinking. pretty cool. And I was a creative thinker. That's pretty cool. And my seventh grade math teacher, who was more concerned with being the girls' soccer coach, he made fun of me. And he wore transition yeah, lenses. He had transition lenses. And I've never liked transition lenses. You know those glasses <laughs> that turn into sunglasses in the sun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not、yep. a fan.、Yep. Not a fan. And it's because of him. Yeah. Pause right there. I'm telling you, it's true. Lifelong distrust of transition lenses. And I think it all comes back. To this one human being. Wild, right? Wild how、uh, kids can hold grudges for as long as I have. Hey, we'll be right back. Okay, everybody, I hope you've stretched. I hope you've hydrated. The break is over. Settle back in. He had transition lenses, and I've never liked transition lenses. You know those glasses <laughs> that turn into sunglasses in the sun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yep, a fan.、Yep. Not a fan. And it's because of him. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. That's shitty. Sorry, Sally. It's okay. You had that experience. You hear my anger coming out. And this, I will tell you、I、this、do. too. For all of my ranting and raving, I do feel like you have,、uh, I feel like you called up. And I'm very happy to have this conversation, but I think you knew you were going to open this well of rage for me. And I thank you for letting <laughs> me have fun with it. Yeah. No, but you know, it's, it's normal, it's natural. Let it out. Who are your <laughs> math heroes? You mean like that you would, that people generally might know or just in my personal life? In your personal life, because I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to、uh, diminish the rock star status of mathematicians, but there's not many mathematicians <laughs> people didn't know. So people will say to me, who are your comedy heroes? I go, Andy Kaufman, David Letterman. How about、sure. you? Who are your、yep. math heroes?、Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I think I, I was very. Fortunate to, when I was in high school, for example, I had only great math teachers. Like, I had really inspiring teachers who clearly loved the subject, but also loved teaching. And so they were able to instill a love of the subject in a lot of people.、Um, and so that was really helpful. Like, I can, I can think of two or three high school math teachers I had off the top of my head who were really instrumental, I think. And if I, if I had had a A bunch of bad experiences in math class in high school, I probably would have taken a very different path.、Um, and then, you know, in terms of like、uh, working mathematicians, Andrew Wiles, who I, who I mentioned earlier, he was definitely、uh, inspiring when I was younger.、Um, and then there are other people. There's, there's a, an award that's given to math. It's kind of like the Nobel Prize in math, but there is no Nobel Prize in math, but it's called the Fields Medal. And, and so that's an award given every four years. And there are a couple of Fields Medalists who、uh, are, were definitely influential.、Um, Tim Gowers was one. Oh, Tim, what? I just talked to him. Tim Gowers is one. Tim Gowers is one. And、uh, Terry Tao, he's another one.、Um, yeah. Now, can I ask your opinion on a mathematician I happen to know? Sure. I think you'll know in the house how I'm aware of this person. You a big fan of Norbert Wiener? Who? 
Now, Nor- I'm, now I'm going to look like an idiot. Norbert Wiener. I don't know who that is. I randomly came across his Wikipedia page and I clicked on it because I said, who is Norbert <laughs> Wiener? That's an amazing name. And that's coming from Chris Gethard. And he invented cybernetics, basically. He helped develop... Let me look this guy up for you. Oops, Norbert. Yeah, please do. Norbert Wiener. Yeah, uh, Norbert Wiener. Uh, 1894 to 1964, an American mathematician and philosopher, professor of mathematics at MIT, child prodigy, early researcher in stochastic and mathematical noise processes, contributing work relevant to electronic engineering, electronic communication, and control systems considered the originator of cybernetics, a formalization formalization of the notion of feedback with implications of her engineering, <laughs> systems control, computer science, biology, neuroscience, philosophy, and the organization of society. Norbert Wiener. I don't know what any of that stuff means, but I was working on a stand-up bit about um, how when I was naming my child, I realized that you got to be really careful because if you name, if you give your kid a name like Norbert Wiener, he's only allowed to be a mathematician. You're not allowed to be anything else if totally. your name is Norbert Wiener. Totally. So I'm yeah. Norbert Wiener guy myself. You can take your, your, uh, that's cool. Field, was it field medalists? You can take those field medalists. <laughs> I'm a Wiener guy. I'm a Wiener guy. It's good to know. <laughs> I'll have to look into it. <laughs> have you ever, this is a, Maybe random question, but it comes back. I, I promise. Have you ever work, been working on a bit and uh, you you want it to work real bad, but you just keep trying it and it it's not landing, and you part of you wants to just kill it because it's not working, but part of you feels like there's still something there and you sort of drag it out, uh, even though it's not working for longer than maybe you should have. Oh yeah, endlessly, endlessly. Even after all these years. Uh, oh, and this is an interesting thing for us to talk about because now you're asking me about my craft. I've asked you about your craft. Yep. And I think that's one of the things that appeals to me so much about comedy is that there is there is no real – there's no algorithm. There's no logarithm. I don't know the difference between those things or really what either one is. But it's – it feels to me like there is some element of magic there. What's going to hit with a crowd? There's jokes that I've worked on for years that I'm I'm thoroughly convinced should hit with a crowd, and I am I am not able to get them to do so. Um, yeah. And then other things that I I um, have very little faith in that right out of the gate hit. And you have to analyze yeah. why and why audiences find some truth or honesty in it. Um, I, I remember distinctly, because I started as an improviser, which is just true chaos, actual chaos. But there's a lot sure. of people who apply sort of game theory to it too, which I bet is something you've thought about in your life, at least on a cursory level. But when I started doing stand-up, I was having a very hard time because I was super comfortable on stage because I'd been on stage doing improv mm-hmm. forever. I had good stories, but then you go and you try mm-hmm. to tell stories at stand-up and people are just accustomed to a certain pacing with punchlines and I didn't have those. And I do remember a moment where I was telling a story on stage and this line got a big laugh and it was kind of in the middle of it and I had never considered that a funny line. And in my head, it got a laugh that night and I just remember thinking to my, like my 
internal monologue just went, that's the punchline. That's the punchline. Remember this. Remember this. And I got a stage and I wrote it down. And then I thought, I had to sit there and analyze that. I went, oh, okay. And maybe it is similar to math. In a way, I'm sitting there telling the story. I go, oh, they don't care about the beginning, middle, and end when it's stand-up. They want the punch. That's the punchline. Why did they laugh at that? Oh, because this detail was unusual in this way. Oh, how can I build everything else around that? Can I trim away all the exposition that doesn't lead right up to that? How much of the actual follow-through do I need? Once I hit that, and then I learn. I'm a storytelling comedian, but very often I will... I will be able to just abandon the conclusion of the story if the punchlines start hitting hard enough. One thing I've actually learned to do, if you look at a lot of my jokes, not that many people do, uh, but I will, ver- I will very often say the ending of the joke at the very beginning and people won't realize that's what I'm doing. And then I'll talk and go okay. on some tangents and do all sorts of other things. And then I loop back to the ending that I've already told them and it will... Yeah appear to them as if I took them on this big journey from beginning to end and I hit this massive callback. But in reality, yeah. I just said the punchline at the top and then led them back to it. Yeah. And it's been very fun. Like I have a joke where I start, I go, cool. I go, the, the saddest moment of my life was not when I saw a hipster food truck run over an old man, but I did see that too. And they go, what the, f-? and then I just start talking about a bunch of other stuff and I go on some tangents and then it loops back around and I tell them what the saddest moment of my life really was. And they totally forgot that I even said that in the beginning. And that's kind of my formula. So maybe there is math to what I do. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I asked because, you know, when I was, when I was in grad school, uh, working on that dissertation with the incomprehensible name, um, you know, in my experience, there was basically a year that I wasted on trying to figure out a problem that I could make headway on uh, to a degree that I could be done with the program. <laughs> um, and it was just like, I felt like <clears throat> I was working on this problem and trying to make progress and was running up against walls and like trying to talk to mentors and other people and get ideas about how to make progress. And you know, after a few months, it was like, is this, is this going to bear fruit? Should I just try and find something else or should I keep like pushing it? And, uh, that was like a year of my life that I spent doing that. Um, and eventually I, I abandoned it and found something else to do. Um, and, and found a problem that was interesting enough that I can, and could make progress on. Um, but that, that process of like, writing and struggling and, and trying to make headway and, and not being sure if I should give up or, or press onward. Um, that to me felt like an experience that was like, it was a, about math and about a specific thing, but it also felt like something that people who are in more traditionally creative pursuits would, would be able to relate to. Well, for sure. And it's, I bet there's a similar thing in both fields, which is that in the moment, you're dealing with extreme frustration and hopelessness. And, but then even if you have to walk away and abandon a thing, quite often it loops around where you're working on something else years later and the experience of failing in that way helps you not fail moving forward. And you actually realize, sure. oh, you picked up so many skills 
by banging your head against that particular wall where even though you couldn't, even though that one beat you and you didn't beat it, oh, now I'm running into this thing and I immediately see the workaround because it's one of the 35 workarounds I tried on this other thing and it didn't work for that. But <laughs> now those are all weapons in my toolbox that I tried and developed. So maybe they have that similar thing yeah. too. There you go. Yeah. Now you mentioned you don't work in math anymore. Yeah, it's true. I mean, about midway through, like I said, I was in grad school for a long time. <laughs> uh, about midway through my grad school career, I, I kind of realized that staying in academia uh, wasn't something I was that interested in, um, partially because you you have no control over where you go. I mean, unless you're like a rock star, um, you typically go wherever the work is, wherever you can find a, a job at a college or university or, or whatever. Um, and I didn't, I didn't like that. I had strong opinions about where I wanted to be coming out of that program, uh, geographically. And so that, that made it not that appealing. Um, and then the other thing sort of just circles back to what we were talking about at the top, which is that, um, even at the university level, uh, teaching is not incentivized, right? Like you, if you're on the academic track, you're not necessarily incentivized to be a good teacher. Uh, like in math, if you do good research and you produce good output and you write a bunch of technical papers, then you can sort of climb the career ladder that way. But if you uh, love teaching and are not as interested in the research side, there's like not as many opportunities for you. Um, and I definitely enjoyed the teaching aspect more than the research aspect. The research was fine and was fun and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, really what was driving me. And so I just, I felt like I didn't want to have to go to some place I didn't want to be in to do something I was less interested in than the teaching. And, uh, I just thought that wouldn't be that rewarding. So I decided to, I wanted to finish the degree, but I didn't want to stay in academia. And then I had to do this dance with my advisor where I sort of, I was worried if I told him I wasn't going to stay in academia, he wouldn't like keep me on. And, uh, so I had to kind of like, I don't know, uh, pretend like I was going to stay in academia long enough to, to, to finish the dissertation and then, uh, do other things. So yeah, I've, I've done other things since then that have been math adjacent, I would say. I was really hoping you were going to say you walked away from math forever and now you sell candles <laughs> that you make out of essential oils at Burning Man. I was hoping that's what you were going to say. Not yet. Not yet. So math adjacent, can I ask what that means? Um, yeah, I mean, so in when I first finished, I uh, worked for a company that uh, sort of supported middle and high school math teachers. So we would help, we would basically uh, write uh, curriculum and, and resources for them to use in the classroom. And so I did that for a while. Um, and now I teach again, but I don't teach math. I basically teach um adults how to code. Uh, so for folks who are looking to, you know, break into technology or something and, and need to have a programming background or programming experience, um, I teach you a program that, that helps people do that. That's cool. I like that. Coding is a, it's a world. I mean, it's a thing I know that I would be very unlikely to do because it is math adjacent. That being said, I really feel like uh, I've always been impressed by the fact that A, it's a simple way 
it's a, it's a thing that allows people to empower themselves, you know, to kind of create and mm-hmm. carve out a space on the internet, which is so um, unregulated. And in many ways, that's good. Other ways, that's scary. And I've, sure. I've also always been so fascinated by the fact that coding, since the very beginning, a lot of its developments have have come about specifically because of creative people. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you, you read about the original group of hackers at MIT and Stanford and the phone freaks and how they figured so much stuff out. And I have always been impressed that there there's like an underground level to coding that's not academic at all. It's the trial and error of random people in the world figuring things out. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of cool history. And it is, it is, um, it definitely, I, for me anyway, it feels like, I don't want to um, undercut my own argument from before, but <laughs> I feel like I am able to be creative in sort of a, a broader, uh, broader lens, um, you know, cause I can, I can build something, but I can build something that I can show to someone who doesn't know anything about programming and they can be like, Oh, that's cool. Um, with math, that is harder. I can't write a dissertation and then show it to someone on the street and have them think there's not anything interesting in it. <laughs> um, so it does, it does allow me to sort of uh, be creative in a, in a way where I'm still also being technical somewhat. So it's a nice kind of hybrid for me. I like that. And for all my, my uh, cantankerousness over the years, <laughs> I am aware that math is necessary. First of all, that society can't <laughs> build. Society will have no foundation without math. Let me be clear about that. And also hearing about that side of things, hearing, you know, you took it to a, a level of depth that is impenetrable to others, but now you're finding ways to utilize some of what you learned to do things that feel creative. That's actually something that I respect immensely and that, um, makes me feel a little even more because I'm so admittedly ignorant about math um, and I cover it with my (laughs) rage, but I bet there's so many examples out there. I bet there's, right. That's the thing. When I hit seventh grade and they start teaching the basics of algebra and I realize that I have, I've never been tested for this, but I know there is a, there is a math equivalent to dyslexia where I'm like, I would be, I, I would actually be surprised if I didn't have that if I tested for it, and then I'm sitting here crying yeah. at night, crying at night because I'm 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 yeah. doing this homework and I'm going, man, I get such good grades and everything else, and then it scares me. But I know that when you get beyond that level, you can hit a point where it's about utilizing math for creativity. That there are all sorts of ways to do that, and I do feel like a chump that I'm such a person who shouts to the hills about how important creativity is, and yet I refuse to see that. <laughs> So thank you for making me admit that publicly. And I live in that shame. Happy to do it. I live in that shame. <laughs> hey, you know, it's not, uh, I don't want you to feel shame about it, right? I think, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not all on you. We, like I said, the, the way that we teach math is, is for the most part so much driven by testing. And um, there's a good book uh, by this guy. I think his name is Paul Lockhart called The Mathematician's Woman. And one of the points he makes in the book is that like, ultimately it's kind of to to math's own disservice that it is so 
practical and so useful and has so much wide applicability because then the focus becomes more on like drilling the skills so that you can apply them. Whereas in other more traditionally artistic pursuits, right? Like if you want to be a painter, it's not like painting is going to help you fight wars or something like that. Whereas <laughs> with math, there, there are tons of people who, you know, work for the NSA and who are mathematicians and there's so many practical applications for cryptography and all of those things. Whereas for other arts, right? It's just like you do it because you love it and you're, you're passionate about it. And you're trying to stop wars, man. You're trying to stop wars. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. And the, yeah. Yeah. And the lack of practical application there is, is, it helps in some sense because then if you want to go into it, you, you're not going into it thinking like, oh, I'm going to go into this because I'm going to make so much money or, or whatever. Maybe part of you is thinking that, but you're also going into it because you just love this thing and it allows you to express yourself. And and with math, we we kind of push all that to the side and we say, well, let's memorize our multiplication tables so that we can learn our algebra, so that we can learn our calculus, so that we can, you know, it's always about, it's about that. It's It's not about like just sitting with it and exploring with it and playing with it. Now, speaking of multiplication, I tell you what, I looked up that thing where you use a bunch of squares instead of how I learned it. It made a lot more yeah. sense. It made a lot more sense to me. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe, maybe that'll be good for uh, when your kid is in school, right? Maybe by then they'll have thrown out all the uh, terrible algorithms we had to study and they'll have a lot better ones. I tell you, in my head, I'd always, they'd go, what's, you know, 17 times five. And I'd be yeah. in my, I'd go in my head and I'd go, well, five times 10 is 50, five times seven is 35. That's, there you go. 85, right? Is, that right? is that right? And that's yeah. kind of how the squares yeah. are built. It's a lot better than that carry the one bullshit. <laughs> stop carrying the one in this society. I'm tired of carrying the one. Of course, everybody, let's pause it, because of course, I somehow find a way to go on an irrational rant. Even though I said, I've said over and over again that I want to be open, carrying the one sets me off. I'm literally yelling about carrying the one now. This is who I am. So I am. I'm going to go sit and think about this. We'll be right back. I'm back. The doctor of math is back. You're back. Let's do it. And that's kind of yeah. how the squares yeah. are built. It's a lot better than that carry the one bullshit. Stop <laughs> carrying the one in this society. I'm tired of carrying the one. You're right. I can't argue with you. I am so tired of carrying the one. No more of this carrying Don't do the it. one nonsense. The one, the one can carry itself. The one's yeah. been around long enough. The one can carry itself right out of my goddamn sight. Because I'm tired of carrying <laughs> the one. Give me the boxes. Give me the boxes. <laughs> Now, when you go out to like a pub quiz with your friends and they, uh -huh. right, every once in a while they throw in some math shit on a pub quiz. Usually it'll be yeah. like, name Harrison Ford's third movie that he was ever in. You get a lot of those at uh -huh. pub quiz. But then every once in a while they're like, and now we're going to pass out papers and there's a grid on it and do this. Do your friends just turn to you yep. and go obliterate everyone? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. Pretty much. You must feel so good in those moments. It does feel good. Yeah. Some there 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 are those moments, right? When some when for most of the time in my day to day life, I'm I mean, I'm very glad I got that 
degree. Um, and I'm, I love the experience of doing it, but it's not like I can use anything about it as a practical matter in my day-to-day life. But then there are those moments where it's like, Oh, this is a math problem. That sounds fun. Let's do that. And, and, uh, I'll get a lot of joy out of it. The one thing I don't like is when, uh, we're at in a group and, we like this doesn't happen now obviously but pre-quarantine you'd go out in a big group uh and order a bunch of food and then the bill comes and people want separate checks and then figure out the tip and then they just turn to you and they're like oh you're the math guy you can do this that that grinds my gears yeah uh, i can imagine <laughs> See, i always used to but other the, than that i used to have the awkward thing too people go hey can we split it evenly and I'm like, well, you all got, you got like three bottles of wine and a whole bunch of whiskey drinks and I don't drink. I'm not paying. I can't do that. But I right. also am completely incapable of subtracting, adding up the cost of all this liquor <laughs> and subtracting it and then figuring out how much you owe and I owe. So I guess we'll just split it evenly yep. and I'll just feel like none of oh. you are my real friends. <laughs> and then resent them for weeks afterwards. Yeah. I got to sit here yeah. and pay for your... Uh, your 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 Johnny Walker black label, really? Yeah, are you paying that when I just got a you know a veggie burger and some steak fries? Oh, that's the worst. That's yeah, I remember my uh, my first job out of college. You know, I was like twenty two years old, and um, I was working at this like digital advertising agency, which was horrible. Um, but I remember going out to lunch with this big group of like advertising people and uh it was someone's birthday and so it was like this fancy lunch people were getting drinks and cocktails and ordering all this food and i'm just like this kid and i ordered a sandwich and that was it and then the bill came and they were like oh let's just split it evenly and it was like a hundred dollars a person because of all of the drinks that people had been getting and i remember just like seething um but i didn't do anything about it i just paid and then was annoyed well we've both been through that horror show together now let me ask you something seriously because i've been joking around a lot and this has been fun and i appreciate you letting me have fun that being said of course um going to princeton it's no joke despite all my joking about it getting a doctorate yeah no joke yeah so this was a real life plan from an early age and you walked away from it at some point. That's a big yeah, thing. Yeah, I guess so. Huh? That's a big yeah. thing. That must not have been easy. Um. Yeah, I guess not. I don't. Know. At the time, it seemed fine, but I, you know, I'd had all these years to process it. I, I remember even, you know, when I was in high school. Like I said, I was a math and science nerd, and I, I remember thinking, oh, like the life of a academic sounds nice. You just like teach classes, and you're by the library, and you can just keep learning your whole life. And that sounds really nice. And I like school. I'm, I was always like good at doing school. Um, and so I, you know, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in like being a good student. And, um, so yeah, it seemed like a natural fit. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I worked hard, I guess, to, to get to the college that I wanted to go to. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, even even when I was in, when I was an undergrad, I remember um, those first couple of years at Princeton were really hard. Uh, like the math program there was super intense, and it was really hard. And I remember like 
I, I think I even failed a midterm at one point and it was coming from my background where I always did really well in school. It was, uh, kind of devastating. I remember just like really doubting myself and feeling like I was stupid and like, uh, you know, my whole life up to that point had been kind of fake. And now I was here at this real institution and wasn't able to hang. Um, and I remember thinking like, okay, well, if this math thing isn't going to work out, I'll, maybe I can do something else and, and thinking about it. And I'd done other things. Like I was, I was also kind of a theater nerd and I'd done theater, uh, in high school and college and kind of like that and like performing. And, um, and I had other interests too, but whenever I would think about like <clears throat> what I wanted to do, I always felt like I would have some regret if I, gave up the math thing. And so I, I decided to sort of double down on it and get a tutor and, and work harder to, to feel like I could hang. Um, and I, I got an undergraduate degree in math as well, but I always kind of felt like an imposter. Like I wasn't as smart as the other people. And a lot of that I think was just me being self-conscious. Um, and, but I, I think because of that experience, it was, the questioning had started back then of like, maybe, maybe you should think about doing something else. Um, after undergrad, I spent a year working. Um, I didn't go directly into grad school, but it was like a corporate job. And after I was there for three weeks, I was like, this sucks. <laughs> I want to go back to school. Um, and so I applied to grad schools. Um, and it was kind of a similar thing when I was in grad school, it was definitely hard and a struggle, but I, I just kept going back to thinking like, if I don't, if I don't finish this degree, regardless of what happens after, if I don't finish this degree or if I don't, if I don't do this at all, I'll always think like, I wonder what would have happened to my life if I had done that. Um, and so now I don't have to have those doubts, right? Like I, I, I know what my life would have looked like if I stayed in academia and it doesn't sound great. And my life right now, um, even considering everything that's going on and where we are as a country, um, given all those things, it's, it's, I think better than it would have been had I stayed on that other path. Um, so I don't have any regrets about it, but yeah, I mean, looking back on it, the 16 year old version of me would not necessarily have expected to see this version of me where I am, but I'm okay with that. That's uh, well said, well said. You landed someplace where you're happy. And, and and would you say the 16-year-old version of you was like laser-focused, be the best, get to Princeton, crush it, that game? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think, yeah. Like, I was very, I was very focused. I mean, I didn't have like my heart set on Princeton from a young age or anything like that. But I, when I would, when we went on, my parents took me on college tours, you know, junior year or senior year or whatever. And I saw some schools and, and when we went to Princeton, there was a, there was a kid in my school who was a couple years older who had, who, had, who was there. And so he gave me a tour. And so I, I don't know, I got like a more personalized experience there. So maybe that had something to do with it, but I just remember, you know, the campus was like really beautiful and um, it seemed like 
you know, I was a, a very serious student and it seemed like a place where academics, like if I wanted to just nerd out academically, I could do that there. And, um, so yeah, I think I was a very, uh, like I, it, academics were important to me for sure. Now, I'm not even exactly sure how to formulate this question. So pardon me if I ramble. <laughs> We've only got eight and a half minutes. So yeah. I'm going to try to keep it quick, but. Yeah. You were on the academia track. You went about, yeah. you went as far as you need to go to really catch momentum in that world. Doctorate, no joke. Now you're in the non-academia world. What I think many people might phrase as the real world. Uh-huh. I have often marveled at the fact that I've never once needed to even say where I graduated college to get a job. And now I'm an artist and I have had some lucky breaks, but other friends of mine, I have a friend who's done some really high level work in like marketing PR stuff. We went to Rutgers together. He didn't graduate. Nobody's ever even asked about it. It's like in the real world, it's the hustle. It's the grind. It's the ability to have good ideas. It's the ability to sell yourself. Sure. Where do you land on that? Cause you've gone really hard in both directions, right? You said academia is yeah. its own thing. I'm going to do another thing. Do you feel like that's an unfair stereotype I just made? Or where do you see the balance being? No, I mean, I think, you know, I, I work now uh, trying to help people break in, like get jobs, right? So I see I see a lot of people with job anxiety and interviewing and um, trying to get a toehold into this industry that is potentially very lucrative, but also shitty in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I, you know, usually... When I think about my own background, my own experience, I think it's definitely helped to a certain degree to have to have, you know, like a, a big name university that you can put on your resume for some organizations can help you maybe get your foot in the door. So like if you're trying to find a job or get, or grab onto an opportunity, those things maybe help at the initial stage, but beyond that, I think you're right, it's about like what can you do? What is your experience can can you talk about it like a normal person? Um, you know, I think it's, it is more about the work and it should be more about the work, even if it's not always like that. Um, I think that's the, the more ethical way to do it. I like you math, man. I wasn't sure if I was going to oh, in the thanks. beginning when you came out of the gate with math, but I, I know. Do Sorry. Like well, it. I figured it would eat up a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also feel like you explained it very fairly in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to lie. There were times where I found myself emotionally putting my guard up because it felt like seventh yeah. grade to me again. But yeah, I appreciate the passion and everything you've said. Now, we've got five minutes and 44 seconds left. So, you know, what else? Yeah. what else is your deal outside of math? <laughs> um, any tips for a... Uh... For a one-year-old quarantine birthday, we've got two kids, and our younger one is turning one next month. Oh. I know you just went through that recently. First of all, congrats. Um, oh, thanks. I mean, you've been doing it longer than I have, right, if you got someone older than one. But, you know, Cal had his one-year-old birthday. I mean, we literally had, had thrown all our st- – dude, we threw – we I bought this house in Jersey, and then right before the move was scheduled yeah. – the building Queens told us they wouldn't allow movers in. And I'm like, I get it, but this is scary. Got the one year old. We're in the epicenter. Throw all our stuff in sure. a car, 
grab him out of his crib yeah. at 1030 at night, drive to, you know, where yeah. my parents had a, a, a house that was open because they snowbird up there for yeah. three months stranded. I only brought four pairs of underwear and shirts because I thought <laughs> it was going to settle. We're going to figure it out in like a week and be able to move up there for three months. Right. He has his one year old birthday party in there. And in my head, I'm so sad because I'm like, man, this is his first birthday party. This should be so special, but we did just like a zoom party. Like everybody's been doing. I'll tell you what I didn't realize was like my aunt Rose in South Carolina got to be there. My uncle Paul who lives in Hawaii. Yeah, that is nice. He lived, he got to be at my one-year-old's first birthday party and all these people, all these people who wouldn't have been there, friends and family got to check in. And then even like after we wrapped up the party, we just left the zoom sitting because my mom and her sister Rose in South Carolina and her brother Paul in Hawaii are sitting there have a video conference, video chat, seeing each other face to face. And then yeah. I'm realizing, well, like they're all a little older. They probably wouldn't have even thought to set this up. And now there's these three siblings right. sitting there connecting. So in a lot of That's ways, nice. it was actually very special and beautiful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, we've got to figure out what to do. I mean, my 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 parents live like 15 minutes from us, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but they're they're older and more at risk, so it's like it makes you know things hard. I think. Okay, you get a portable table, you get the cake, you drive to your parents, you set that cake up outside, you know, and they come out on their porch and you all sing. Because at the end of the day, the one-year-old's not going to remember it. And you're so tired that there's also, let's admit it, there's also a part of you that's like, now I got to clean up all this fucking cake. Like, that's a part of it too. For this kid who's not even going to remember it. So if your parents are right there, I feel like you do it for them, right? A one-year-old's birthday party is more for all those people. But yeah, exactly. Of that. You're yeah. smarter than me. I have an American studies degree. <laughs> I didn't. Hey, you, don't knock it. You did. You did a dissertation. The Americans aren't going to study themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, that's certainly proving itself more true. Americans don't want to study themselves. <laughs> certainly proving itself true <laughs> in 2020. But I'm telling you, I mean, you wrote a dissertation full of words I literally don't know. And I did an independent study about how Marvel comic book characters are kind of are kind of like our versions of Greek gods. So you're smarter uh-huh. than I am. You can figure out a one-year-old's birthday party. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. Jury's still out. Yeah. How much time do we have left? Two minutes. Okay. There's one thing I kind of want to tell you, but it's going to out me. Okay, well, we can bleep it. Um, I'm the guy who did the analysis of your beautiful anonymous transcripts. Oh, that was awesome. That was re- that blew our <laughs> minds over here. That was years ago, right? That was like two years ago? Yeah, a couple – something like that, yeah. And if I remember right, you analyzed yeah. like the frequency of words and themes and stuff like that? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I awesome. I just saw that there's a ton more transcripts on that Google Drive, so now I kind of want to go back and update it. Yeah, so I believe. That's not my to do list. I think we are all caught up because I believe um, we just switched like our server backend system to a thing that can help provide the transcripts. So if you want to run cool. some analysis on this big on this bad boy again, I'd love to see it. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah, I'll do it. it I'll was, do it pretty trippy to hear how often i say certain things what's that (laughs) 
<laughs> if this gets in, that's also fine. Like, I don't really care. Yeah, that was wild. That that I gotta say, like, doing what I do. You know, sometimes people hand you drawings and stuff. It's always meaningful. It's for somebody to go. Here's a complete yeah. mathematical analysis of of your <laughs> verbal tendencies on this show. It's like, yeah. whoa, this is cool. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. How long does that take you? Yeah, How long does a thing like that take you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe um, it was, it was part time. I mean, I have a job, right? So it was, it was mostly like nights and weekends for, I don't know, off and on for maybe a month. The analysis maybe took that long, about a month. And then writing it up was a little shorter. The hard, the hardest part is like making it look nice, right? Like I could collect the data and have it in a spreadsheet or something, but then I didn't want it to look like garbage. So so longer. we're out of time, but I feel like it's very appropriate to ask you as a doctor of mathematics who analyzed, yeah. did a deep dive analysis on Beautiful Anonymous, if you yeah. had to draw any top line conclusion about this show, what would it be? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a, a tough question. I mean, <laughs> the analysis happened so long ago that I don't quite remember it. But uh, I mean, one thing I do remember is that uh, the, the data seemed to suggest that you were evolving as a host of the show. Like I remember early in the show, the first few episodes, you were definitely talking more and I know you, you were hard on yourself for talking too much, but I feel like that's a nice takeaway from the show, right? Like it's, it's trying to bring people together so that we can learn and evolve as a group. And the data bears that out in your own personal experience and interaction with the show that you are learning to listen more and and uh, hopefully learn from everyone else as well. Well, that's really nice. I hope I hope I have kept heading in that direction in the time since your <laughs> study. And I got to thank you, Doctor yeah. Meth. I got to thank you, Doctor Meth, for defending your your uh, your world against the at times irrational anger I have demonstrated <laughs> towards it for the past four years and change. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Great talking. You too. Caller, thank you. You know, over the years, I've realized that this math thing, this chip on my shoulder is a bit much. And talking to you, I think, may have finally uh, put that demon to rest forever. So thank you so much. Also, thank that. I, I think a lot of people who've been in the Facebook group a long time remember you did that analysis of the show. It was so funny. It came out of nowhere. And I thank you for, for doing that. It, it was so cool. Thank you to Jared O'Connell. Thank you to Anita Flores. Thank you to Shell Shag for the music. If you like the show, go to Apple Podcasts. Great review, subscribe. It really helps. If you want to check out our entire back catalog, go to stitcherpremium.com slash stories. They're all there. Get the details. Enjoy it. We'll see you next time. Next time on Beautiful Anonymous, a single mother of four who's been divorced just a few years tells us how a marriage falls apart and what it's like to get back in the dating game. What are some of the things that stand out? Because you said you have a short lease, you have a gong show. What are some of the things that these guys have done to get the gong? It's a, a very great area when you're, you meet them and they're like, well, like I, I do live with my parents. I'm like, well... Gong. Because of, uh, yeah, like, is this a, a temporary thing? Because everyone has shit happen. 
Well, it's been like 18 months. Well, that's not a temporary thing. That doesn't Gone. meet my low bar expectation of having your shit together. That's next time on Beautiful Anonymous.